So Romans chapter 5 and page 942. Just before I read that, let me pray. Our Father, we do want to thank you that uh, we've been singing about uh, how you showed us your love while we were still your enemies. And we pray that you help us today to study the Bible with that head of humility, wanting to understand that we don't deserve your love. And it help us to see what effect your love should have on us. And we pray you help us this evening to learn things that we'll always remember and which will bring about a change in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I think we just press on, don't we? And uh, keep going. And uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is a great launch point to our opening question. What flicks the joy switch in your life and turns it on? Well, um, I suppose another way of asking that question is... Uh, are you happy? And if you're happy, I'm happy, but I'd like to know why are you happy? And if you're not happy, why are you not happy? Now, maybe that there are things that make us happy or unhappy, or it could be that we are happy or unhappy just in the kind of people that we are. There are some people who are almost always happy, there are some people who really find that a struggle. For some people, the joy battery 
is really low. But what's interesting to read in this letter is that the Apostle Paul is writing to a whole mixture of very, very different people. And we saw before that when he writes to Jews and Gentiles, he is really addressing everybody at either end of the human race. Everybody is included. And Paul says, whoever you are, wherever you come from, if you are someone who is a Christian, then joy should be in us. And you see that in verse 2, rejoice. You see that in verse 3, rejoice. You see that in verse 11, rejoice. And that's uh, something that Paul says any single Christian person is able to do. And you know from the word itself that it has joy in the middle of it. So today's uh, look at our Bible helps us to see what is the switch that turns on rejoicing, that turns on joy. And what might be the two switches that try and turn it off? First, what switches joy on and we're going to see that uh, verse 1 tells us the answer to that we have peace with God and verse 2 tells us what will come from that peace that we have that will help us rejoice but you notice that the peace we have from God is um, something that is not inside us we might think peace is something inside us but what makes the peace is something outside of us we have peace with god through someone else to someone outside through our lord jesus christ and that is the reason why we have peace with god because it says right at the start of verse 1, we are justified by faith. Now, that seems to be a really hard, big word to take in. Justified by faith. What does that mean? We might think it's hard, but actually it's very, very easy. Just do what we did last week. And to think of this person called Abraham. Remember how we said last week, Abraham helps us to understand what a Christian is really, really simply. And what Abraham did is that God made him a promise about the future and Abraham believed that promise and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, God declared, Abraham, you are righteous. He justified Abraham. When God says, you are righteous, he justifies you and you see that that's what he did in Romans chapter 4 and uh, just like Abraham believed God and the promise that God made to him so in chapter 4 verse 5 it's only one page behind and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteous. So, 
justification is really a declaration from God. It doesn't really matter what we want to say about ourselves, but when God says this, then we are justified. And it's because God justifies us as we trust Jesus that we have peace with him. Which really tells us that before we had no peace with him. In fact, if you look at verse 10, you read that we were his enemies. And that's generally something that sticks in our throat. We don't want to admit that, but what we've seen in the first three chapters of Romans is that we mustn't suppress the truth. We mustn't, as it were, push back on the reality that we have done things to make God really angry with us. And so we are his enemies. The only way we can be his friends is if you read on and you get to chapter 3 and verse 25 and you see how God soaked up his own anger when Jesus died for us on the cross. In verse 25 of chapter 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. When God soaked up his own anger as Jesus died on the cross. That is what stopped God feeling towards us, treating us as if we were his enemies. And because God is the one who is aware that we are his enemies, God is the one who has to fix the war, if you like, that's been going on. Now, I think we need to be very careful because there are some people who think, actually, I might be able to fix that myself. There was someone I met, uh, I didn't meet, but um, Ronan and Barry met today, a guy called Bill, who we saw uh, on our estate, and, and he said that he had, he understood that he needed God, that what he had wasn't enough. And we might think, well, there's a person who's now going to become friends with God. But no, there is a whole lot of anger in the way that has to be got rid of first before any friendship is possible. And so God has to stop the enmity and to open the door of friendship to him, to open the door of peace. Now again, we need to be really careful because we can think that peace is something we feel inside us. Let me tell you, I don't think the people in Rome would have felt very peaceful because at this time, the emperor running the country was a man called Nero and he hated Christians. My guess is that no Christians in Rome were actually feeling a lot of peace at that time. But this is a peace that we have, you can see that in verse 1, whether we feel it or not, because it is a status rather than a feeling. Now here am I, I keep forgetting to press the button, and uh, so let me just go back and press the button uh, three times uh, and uh, finally get to the bit that I need to be at, which is that peace is a status and not a feeling. 
Our difficulty, I think, is that we generally think the human race is lived like a skyscraper. There are some people right at the top of the skyscraper, they must be very close to God, and then there are people at the bottom of the skyscraper, they must be very far from God, and therefore you get these different levels of people as far as God is concerned. But what uh, verse 2 tells us is that uh, uh, we don't have a skyscraper, we have a door, a door called Jesus. Through him we have access into his grace. When we have peace with God, it means that God from now on will be gracious to us. Now, from now on, whatever happens, it will not be that God is punishing us, but that he is being gracious to us. And so, uh, from now on, we live with that confidence that God is gracious to us now, the grace in which we stand, trusting him and his love. And we have also, at the end of verse 2, the hope of the glory of God. That is to see God in the amazing splendor that the Bible describes with the word glory. And my friends, God wants you to be happy about this. God's word for you tonight is, would you be rejoicing in the fact that you have peace with God, in the fact that God says that you are righteous, in the fact that God has given you access into his grace, and in the fact that God has put now in front of you his glory, which is what you are heading towards as you aim, as you approach a meeting with him. Be happy about that. God wants you to be. But there are two things that will switch off happiness, if at all possible. First uh, off switch is suffering. That is God saying to you, declaring to you, you are righteous. And then suffering comes along and says, no, you are not righteous. Because God is punishing you. That is why suffering has come into your life. Now suffering comes in loads of different ways. There are some Christian specific only suffering, like persecution. But there are a whole range of other <coughs> sufferings. You might remember in the old part of the Bible, there's a man called Job. And when you discover what happened to him, it's a very modern range of different things that happened to him that actually uh, happens to um, <coughs> an, uh, people uh, today. So, for example, Job suffered uh, natural disasters. He suffered violent crime. He suffered terrorism, he suffered bereavement, he suffered sickness. Very up-to-date list of sadness and suffering, even though it's written a very, very long time ago in the Bible. And all these things happened to Job, even though Job was a believer. It actually says that he was a righteous man. So suffering couldn't come to Job and say, you are not a righteous man, when God has already declared him to be a righteous man. 
But when suffering comes, we can lose our confidence that God loves us. So easy, isn't it? Now, some people can say, ah, that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Christians don't face suffering. And so you get uh, a new form of Christianity being taught that from now on all Christians should be prosperous. No suffering should come to us at all. Then there are the people that say, no, 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 we're old school. We think there is suffering now and we will get to glory, but only later. Now Paul is more old school than new school. He says, yes, we do suffer now and we will get to glory. But in between, in the here and now, in that suffering itself, God is doing deep work in your life incredible work in your life. Work that will only happen through suffering. No other way. And he talks about three things that come from our suffering. First, there is perseverance or endurance, another word. Now, what happens when we do not persevere or endure? We let go of God. But when suffering comes, one of the effects it has to show you that you are a real Christian is you now start clinging to God. You don't give up on Him. You persevere, trusting Him, holding on to Him. Perseverance grows when suffering comes. So does character. You see, until suffering comes, we don't know if your character is proven, whether you're a real Christian or not. <coughs> That's one of the things that uh, the devil was trying to get at when he started putting Job through all his suffering. What he was trying to say is Job only loves God because of the good things that God has given him. Take those good things away and Job will not love God anymore. And the suffering comes to Job and all the good things are taken away and the character of Job comes out, which is that he will love God because of God himself, not because what he can get out of him. And so therefore, if you think about it, the temptation that came to Job uh, will you love God when all these things uh, have been taken from you and you suffer? Job was saying, no, no, God is worth loving even when I'm not getting stuff from him. And the temptation really ultimately was a temptation that Job suffered that, that actually the devil was trying to prove that God is not worth loving unless he buys people gives them presents and then buys their love. And Job said, no, no, God's not like that. I love God for who he is, not for what he gives me. And so his character came out the surface. That's what comes out when you suffer. You realize, I love God for who he is, not just for the different things that he's put in place in my life. And then the third thing that comes out is hope. Hope 
that looks to the future. Until suffering comes, it is so easy for me to look at this life and say, this is the place to be. Everything's going well, I've got every uh, wonderful thing in place. And therefore, yes, I know that people talk about uh, future and eternity and meeting with God and all that, but I tell you, now is the time for me. And then suddenly what happens is that now changes and sadness comes into the now and I begin to say, no, I want God. I want to be in his presence where he'll be wiping away every tear from every eye and where uh, God will be with me and I will know the end of my pain. And hope is now uh, much bigger than uh, hope for the hope of glory is much greater than we have in the present. Now, all that is theory. Let me explain to you how the theory can become practice. Let me tell you the story of an imaginary character called Mary. Mary becomes a Christian on a Sunday. Her husband's not a Christian, so on Monday. He just mocks her. On Tuesday, she breaks her arm. On Wednesday, her daughter has an accident. On Thursday, her mother dies. And she's in church on Sunday. That shows you that Mary is a real believer and it shows you that she is a real believer far, far more than a problem-free week would have told you. Do you understand? That is what works in, in suffering. There are certain fruit, if I can put it like that, that only grow in the soil of suffering. And if you don't have suffering, you will not have those three things perseverance character or hope now you might say why is it that mary is still clinging on what's her secret and the answer is there in verse five the god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who's been given to us what the holy spirit does is he comes and he works in our hearts and helps us to see that God's love for us cannot be measured in the ups and downs that we are going through at the moment. The love of God is measured by the cross of Jesus. And he pours the love of God, in other words, an understanding of the cross of Jesus and his love for you, all that that means. He pours that into your hearts so that you are no longer measuring God's love by whether there's suffering or no suffering. You're now measuring God's love by what Jesus did on the cross. You see, if all that Jesus did on the cross you know, was to die for you, and if that was all we had, then that would be a kind of theory from the past that we might think is a bit distance and distance detached from us. Equally, if we had the Holy Spirit just by himself, without any anchoring truth uh, in, in, in 
the facts of what has taken place, the facts of history, if we just had the Holy Spirit, that would just be a personal experience. That wouldn't be rooted in anything. But when you have the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we have the objective truth of God's love for us on the cross made personally real for us through the Holy Spirit so that we understand how much God loves us because of what he did as the Holy Spirit personally applies the cross to our hearts, to our lives. And we have that personal reassurance that God loves us despite the knocks and the tears. So we look at suffering as it comes to us and suffering says you are not a righteous man and we say this is what God does to bring about his righteous purpose for our lives. The Holy Spirit applies the cross to our hearts in all those areas of suffering. No, Jesus loves you. You are still righteous. Don't switch off the joy. And then the other way the little off switch can be flicked is not just through outward suffering, but through inward sin. This is how it goes. God says you are righteous, justified. And sin says, no, you are not righteous. Look what you've just done. And so, again, the joy gets switched off. And we have this problem, don't we, when we keep on sinning after we become Christians. It is very hard to think that God loves failures. You look at how things are changing so slowly and you were hoping that actually you would be a much better Christian, much quicker than this. Everybody else seems to be rocketing ahead, but I seem to be way back where I was when I became a Christian, I don't know, 40 odd years ago. Can't see too much change. And so I asked myself, well, has God really made me righteous? Because I'm not behaving that way. And what Paul wants us to know is that me being a Christian never depended on me in the first place. That's what verse 6 is there to tell us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't really me doing anything. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And if you ever want to think of yourself, but surely... Um, uh, my job is to be strong if God is going to love me. It is interesting isn't it, to look at the way Christians are described in verse 6. They are described as weak and ungodly. In verse 8, Christians are described as sinners. And in verse 10, Christians are described as God's enemies. So here's the logic. If God can die for weak, ungodly sinners, enemies, and make them his friends. That's what it means to be reconciled in verse 10. If God can turn enemies into friends, here's the logic, do you think he might be able to turn friends or take friends into glory, into his home? Can you see the logic that he's saying? If God can 
take enemies and make them his friends, do you not think he can take his friends and take them home? And so therefore, don't let sin switch off the rejoicing. And in verse 11 uh, of uh, chapter 5, Therefore, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have received the reconciliation. It's not through our righteousness, in the sense of us trying to get better. It is through his reconciliation that we will go home. So what does that mean for us uh, in our uh, day uh, uh, as, we, as we look at this? Well, I must apologize if you're, a Christ, if you're not a Christian li listening to this because everything I've said tonight really applies only to Christians. We have peace with God. That's what Paul says. Only those who are justified by faith have peace with God. Now, I still want to suggest that this could be really helpful for a non-Christian listening in, even though I'll be the first to admit it won't be very comfortable for anyone to really uh, uh, take in what's been said, that ultimately it is good to know if you don't have peace with God, that that is actually the case. Now it's really important, I think, for us to understand that because, because it is easy, isn't it, to live up, to, to grow up and to hear what people generally say, that is that everybody is somehow part of God's family, everybody is his friend. I bet you've heard that lots. It's most, mostly how people think and talk. The Bible tells us, when you look at verse 10, is that actually no, we are his enemies. And it's important, I think, for us to recognize that for this reason. That it is only when we are his enemies that we will ever now have a reason to turn around to God and say, please, would you reconcile me? I don't want to be your enemy anymore. Now people might turn around and open up the Bible and say, Mike, how can you say that the world is God's enemy when big passages in the Bible tell us that God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. But we need to remember that when God loves someone, he warns them about how things really are, that they really are his enemies. Why? So that the second part of that verse comes through. So that anyone who believes in him will not perish. They don't believe in him, they will perish because enmity is how the relationship stands until we trust the promise of Jesus to uh, reconcile us to God. And it's a lovely thing for us to ask God tonight if this is um, a truth beginning to come home to us, that we are enemies of God, to say, please, will you reconcile me, Jesus, to your Father? Because I don't want to carry on 
as his enemy for one more day and because I want access into his grace. I want ultimately the hope of his glory. It's a great thing to ask for. What happens if you've been knocking around church circles for some time? Now it's easy, isn't it, if you've been to church lots and lots to do the rejoicing part that we've been talking about, especially if there's a good band playing that's even better than our band and everybody's singing in what is a concert type atmosphere, waving their arms and yes, of course you're rejoicing. But when you get outside of uh, Sunday, we need a whole lot more than a catchy chorus. When life knocks us hard and when we fail to get things right. And rejoicing doesn't last long when you go to places where the only thing they say is you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And the list of rules is long and in the end what that leaves you feeling is very insecure that you are peace, at peace with God because you've got all these things to do and you haven't done them. And so therefore there's no security that you have. And there are many people who go to churches and they just don't feel secure. And it really has a down-to-earth effect on our relationships because when someone is insecure, generally they hurt other people. The playground bully, when you try and work out why he is a bully, is normally because he is deeply insecure and he's trying to get on top of other people to show that he's bigger and stronger than them. And in churches, when we have that insecurity and we ultimately have our list and we know that we're not uh, ticking all the boxes, we then begin to feel insecure and we either think of ourselves as superior above other people like this playground bully or we'll think that we are inferior and other people are better. But God says, no, that is not what uh, life is about. And we need to understand that God wants us to be secure, not insecure. And so we come to the final question, what is it like then to be a real believer? And I want to suggest it's simply this from tonight. I want to go home rejoicing in God a whole lot more than I do. You see, if I understand this passage well, it's not the presence of sin that should be a worry for me. The presence of sin can be dealt with. Answered. What would worry me is the absence of rejoicing. That is uh, the danger uh, mark of someone who's not seeing the gospel clearly. Someone who isn't really living in this world where God has declared you to be righteous and therefore you are at peace with him. That you have access to his grace, that all that happens to you in your life comes from his good hand, even suffering, because those three gifts are being added to you as you suffer. Even sin as you rejoice that God 
still loves you, that that doesn't turn rejoicing off. And so we need to understand that we are going to be um, uh, living in this world of rejoicing. Now don't get me wrong, there are times when life will be really hard for me. I know I want to go out and I want to rejoice more and more, but there are going to be times when I will be crying on your shoulder, you need to get out the tissues. But as well as getting out the tissues, please don't forget to get out the truth. They'll be of more comfort to me. And the truth is that God still loves me because he has set me at peace with him. He has opened access into his grace. He has put in front of me the hope of glory. Keep those truths. Build them up. And help me to see that even in the suffering, God is working through growth in my life in new and deep ways. Growing perseverance, growing character, and growing hope. Bring the joy back into my life again as you comfort me with this truth that we keep on rejoicing. Rejoicing is the mark of Christianity. It's something that really we need to go home and ask God's help to grow in as a church because it's the opposite of, uh, remember, chapter 1 where the problem with the world at that point in chapter 1 verse 21 is that although people knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But once we understand what God is like, once we are justified by faith, then the rejoicing can start. And our work as a church is to bring joy into each other, ultimately to bring joy into our estate as well. The ministry of Beckentry Church is to create joy, is to create rejoicing, even in climates of suffering and even in struggles against sin. Let's pray that God will help us to do that as uh, we uh, maybe have a moment of quiet and I'll press my button for the last time. I think you got the message already. But let's pray that God will help us to grow in joy because of what he has done and all he has promised. Let me have a moment of, uh, uh, give a moment of quiet so you can talk to him privately. Then I'll lead us in one prayer. We've had a minute, I think, so let me pray. Our Lord God, there are many things that we often look to to make us happy and we find that we're happy for a while and then we don't feel the same way. We go up and we go down and we thank you, Father, that you have tonight opened for us a reason to be rejoicing all the time because you have given us peace, because you have given us access to your grace, because you have put in front of us the hope of glory. 
And Father, we pray that you will please help us to find our joy and to learn how to do that uh, as we go out from this study into a new week. And even though the cold water can be thrown in us because of suffering, or maybe because we ourselves find discouragement when we are sinful, please would you help us to understand that what you have declared, that we are righteous, is still the answer to every little thought that you don't love us. And please would you help us to cling to you, help us to love you for who you are, and help us to look forward to our time before you in your presence, before your glory. Please, Father, would you help us, the church, to find our joy in these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.